Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Naomi, where's your head at right now? Not... Not in my book, I'll say. I finished the book tour for for Doppelganger kind of just at the moment that that this surge of 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 extreme violence was exploding in Israel and Palestine. And so I sort of forget, did I write a book? Was I a book tour? But I'm happy to talk about Doppelganger if I can remember what's in it. But yeah, I, I like you, my head has been in another part of the world. All of us. And and what's the predominant emotion you feel about the war? devastated to be witnessing this decimation and and loss of life i feel like the world has gone completely mad um i mean i've been focused on calls for a ceasefire which is not a i i thought was not a radical demand but but we've seen it be very deliberately equated with surrender it is not that it's never been that it is just a recognition that if the goal is to defeat hamas leveling Gaza is something totally different. And, you know, I think the, the goal of this is, is, is quite clearly to make Gaza unlivable. I've just been, been uh, calling for a ceasefire with all my might, but feeling very weak, like I don't have much might, <laughs> which I don't. Mm. That's author Naomi Klein. Her latest book is titled Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. And I'm Brian Selder. Welcome to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. Today, we're going inside the information wars, both raging in the Middle East and in the United States. Naomi referenced the nearly one-month-long Israel-Hamas war, and she's been a longtime board member of the group Jewish Voice for Peace. She's also been present at rallies calling for a ceasefire. So, Naomi, let's start there before we get into Doppelganger. Um, There are actually, I think, a lot of connections between the two, but when it comes to the war, you say you feel like the world has gone mad. In what ways? Well, um, I think it is one of those moments where the most powerful forces on Earth, you know, backed by nuclear uh, arsenals, whether we're talking about the U.S. or, or Israel, are seem to be acting on pure emotion, which is not what one wants uh, from leaders with that level of power. And this idea of just sending a message through brute violence, you know, I, I remember from post 9-11 of just, you know, we are going to teach them a lesson. Uh, that's not the way lessons work. I mean, I think we're, we are still in the world created 
by the brute violence after after 9-11. Um, this idea that you you teach the world a, a lesson by destroying uh, a residential areas, hospitals, um, you know, that breeds more more terrorism from what I saw in my reporting in Iraq. Um, and I guess what I find shocking is that there seemed to be a sense that we learned a lot, of, like we told ourselves we learned some of the lessons from 9-11 about what violence can and cannot do. And now it just seems like we are are really doubling down. When you say we, yeah. who is who is the we? We is the Western world. I mean, every you know, I'm speaking to you from Canada. I've dual U.S. Canadian citizenship. I've lived in the states. I'm Jewish, uh, so here I here I am, a person that could have three citizenships if I wanted to. I'm I am I am part of the intensely privileged world, as I think you are as well. But we live in an unbelievably unequal world. And increasingly, I think the privileged parts of the world believe that we can maintain really untenable levels of injustice and inequality through walls, prisons, force. You know, this is some of what I get into in the book, including, you know, the book does end in Gaza, strangely enough. So when I say we, I'm talking about all these governments and all the Western governments that have said to Israel, we quote unquote stand with you. I mean, I don't stand with Israel. I stand with international law. I stand with uh, you know a, 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 an international humanitarian legal architecture that grew out of the Second World War and the atrocities of the Holocaust that says you can't target civilians. So I condemned the targeting of civilians when it was Hamas doing it. But what I see in Gaza with the leveling of apartment blocks, um, the collective punishment and the discourse of, you know, it's our turn to do Dresden, it's our turn to do Hiroshima, is actively unlearning everything that was learned from the atrocities of the Second World War. You know, I, I think this is the moment where we stand with what we already decided after the Second World War, which is you do not target civilians, um, you do not collectively punish, and you do not uh, attempt to eliminate a people in whole or in part. And when you have documents emerging from Israeli intelligence about um, moving large parts of the population of Gaza into Egypt, that is decimating a people in part. Um, so, you know, I'm just trying to stay true to these agreements that our uh, predecessors came up with in the aftermath of the Second World War. I don't know what else to do. How comfortable, how uncomfortable is this moment right now, you know, uh, you know, representing a progressive Jewish organization, speaking in D.C. at a ceasefire rally when the Israeli government is saying nothing of that sort and the U.S. government is clearly backing the Israeli government? How, how, how do you what are those emotions like? How uncomfortable is it? You know, I feel, you know, I'm, I'm old, I'm in my fifties, you know, and I've, I've been writing about this issue since I was a student journalist. And the first big controversies I've ever experienced were about writing about this issue. I would say that it's a huge shift that there are large organizations representing progressive Jews who do not equate Judaism with a total alignment with the policies of the state of Israel. I, you know, when I was growing up, when I was coming up, there were, you know, a few large Jewish organizations that just equated Jewish interests with the policies of the state of Israel. Right. When I started working with Jewish Voice for Peace, I'm a volunteer member of their board. 
They had three staff people. Now they have dozens. Uh, they have the capacity to buy full page ads in the New York Times to mobilize thousands of people in Grand Central Station and, um, you know, in front of, in front of Congress. So, it's more comfortable because I feel like there is a huge generational shift. There's also a group like If Not Now. There's a lot more diversity. Um, and I think it's a real ethical voice that JVP has. Um, you know, they, they're, they, they're not negating their own Jewishness. They're speaking from a, a place of Jewish values. They're saying all, all life is precious. They're saying free the hostages. They are clearly opposed to the targeting of civilians when Hamas does it, but also when the IDF does it. So. To me, it's just a huge relief that there are groups like this. We're not going to agree on every single thing, but that there are groups like this that create a space for progressive Jews to find each other. So it's a horrific moment, but it's also a less lonely moment than it has been previously for me. That's really interesting. I've also seen on your Twitter feed, or sorry, your X feed, uh, some critiques of media coverage of the war, the first few weeks of the war. What are the most important critiques you'd share of, you know, the Western media's coverage here? The message that all of life is precious, that all lives are of equal value, all civilian life, um, I think needs to inform the media coverage. And and I think there, that, that some of it is logistical and some of it is just bias around who gets to have a full story, who gets to have a full backstory, who is a number, who is a statistic. You know, a lot of my Palestinian friends have just felt like, you know, when they turn on the networks, they hear these these humanizing stories. And it's not to say that we, we shouldn't about, about Israeli hostages. Um, but then when it comes to Palestinians who are losing lives in much greater numbers in Gaza right now, the whole story of who that child was, who that parent was, um, you know, doesn't get told. Um, so I think that that's the biggest picture. And, you know, when I say some of it is logistical, you know, I've been to Gaza, I, I've reported from there, but it's damn hard to get in there. Uh, and, you know, I worry about, I mean, it's very hard for Israeli journalists to get into Gaza. I think they, yes, they actually just yeah. can't. Yeah. Right. Um, but then if you're banning Jazeera, which is, you know, one of the only networks that is broadcasting live from, from Gaza, you're deciding to be in an information blackout. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I could go on and on about the critiques. Um, you know, I also think I've made mistakes. You know, I've shared information I shouldn't have shared too early. Um, you know, we're all sort of frantically trying to 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 broadcast from <laughs> in ways that are problematic on on social media. And I think all we can mm. do is just apologize and say, okay, we posted too soon. Um, try to correct. Um, you know, I, after the 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 bombing explosion of at the hospital, I was troubled to, to turn on CNN and just see Israeli spokespeople give their side of the story, um, at, you know, kind of unchallenged. Is it possible to look at this information space and say that one group, one side, one party is winning the, the, the narrative war right now? Or is that impossible these days because everybody lives in their own little bubble, <laughs> as you write about? Yeah, I mean, I it's so hard to tell. We, we curate our own feeds. You know, I have made a decision to follow lots of people who are in Gaza right now um, and who are who are journalists, who are civilians, who are just so when I when I look at my feed, uh, you know, I don't see it as a win lose situation. I think this is absolutely horrific and nobody is winning anything. But I see I see the, a, a, a lot of what is going on in Gaza right now. But I have no sense of whether or not 
Uh, my parents are seeing that. My relatives in Israel are seeing that. Right, it's so strange right. to be able to curate reality in the way that we're able to right now. So it's so unsettling. It's so. Yeah. I'm so glad you said it that way. It's it is so strange and it's so new. It's so new relatively, like in the arc of our lives and of human history. The idea that we're all getting our own reality is a new and unsettling concept. It is, and it. I think it explains why partly explains why you can have such diametrically opposed interpretations and emotional responses to a moment like this. You know, and I teach at university uh, on a university campus. I've been off this semester. I've been off campus this semester because I've been on book tour, but you know, I'm going back and this is all playing out, right? Where, you know, you have, you have some uh, students associated with groups like Hillel who feel that just seeing a Palestinian flag makes them unsafe. Right. And you have um, Palestinian uh, and Arab students who see an Israeli flag as, as something that that means I stand with the people who, who are bombing my family. You know, so how do we navigate a moment like this? And, and it's really going to test universities' commitments to academic freedom, to freedom of expression. Um, there's a lot of pressure. It's a tough time to be a university administrator. I'm glad I'm not one. <laughs> Yeah, it's very hard to imagine having to navigate that. Let me fit in a quick break here. Uh, Much more in just a minute. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Hive. And we're back here on Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. Let's get right back to our conversation. One of the things that's really horrified me and baffled me are these massacre deniers. You know, these folks who are claiming that there wasn't mm. actually a massacre, uh, you know, in Israel, that, that it's made up by the media or by the Israelis. There has been a critique, you know, um, you know, there's been a, cl- a claim, at least, that some on the left have been unwilling to condemn the, the Hamas massacre in Israel. Have you wrestled with that? Have you, have you noticed this? You know, I have wrestled with it. I wrote a piece in The Guardian that was explicitly about this. Not that there was a, deni- that's a separate thing around the denial. Yeah, the denial And I think that's thing. quite marginal. Okay. I mean, and and I think it's important to say that there are, you know, there are people on the left who are in denial about the brutality of the, targeting of civilians, the massacres, um, you know, on Israeli 
kibbutz like Berry, the music festival, and very selective editing of information. It is massacre denialism, and it serves no one to engage in that. In that, there was separate from the what you're describing this denialism. There were comments that were made, you know, October 9th, tenth, eleventh, that were just, you know, somewhat celebratory, right? Or at least not reckoning with, you know, like like a kind of um, an excitement about the image of the paraglider, right? Of the, this image of freedom. And let me tell you, I mean, I've been to Gaza. I've reported from Gaza. It is absolutely an open air prison. And so I can understand 16 years into a siege when you just see a paraglider and you don't know where that paraglider is going, that that is an image of liberation, Right. So those initial responses of this is a jailbreak, I absolutely get. Once you know where they were going, it has a completely different meaning. And I think we need to acknowledge that. And I think there have been there's been there has been acknowledgement. I mean, there have been groups that, you know, tweeted those images and, you know, since taken them down. Um, Like I said. I think we need to stay true to international humanitarian law. I think you can say Palestinians have the right to armed resistance up to the point of targeting civilians. That is not a complicated thing to say. Um, That's not a complicated thing to acknowledge. Um, uh, People under occupation do have the right to resist. They don't have the right to target civilians. And as if you want to have an ethical left, you can't celebrate violations of international humanitarian law in the morning and invoke them in the afternoon when it's the Israeli military that is violating international law. That's not how international law works. You have to believe in it all the time because really all it has is its moral force. Um, So it does matter. And I think there have been many, many ethical Palestinian voices and voices on the left. And this is why I I am, you know, proud to be on the board of JVP that have been very consistent in their application of international humanitarian law. When I condemn what Hamas did, I condemn it as a war crime. I am calling that a war crime because that is what it is. But the way a lot of this has been discussed and I think quite deliberately, has been as a hate crime against Jews, um, as a pogrom, as if they were just out hunting for Jews, right? So, and I understand why it feels that way, because it feels that like, like when I hear an Israeli official or a U.S. official say this was, what's the line? That this is the most number of Jews were killed in any day since the Holocaust, Since right? the Holocaust, yeah. Right. So that makes it sound like they were killed because they're Jews, but I'm not sure they were killed because they were Jews. I think they were killed because they were Israelis. But that universalizes it. It takes it out of its geopolitics. It takes it out of a conflict over land and borders. And it says that this is just a hate crime, an anti-Semitic hate crime. And I think we should interrogate that a little bit. Um, I'm not saying Hamas isn't, you know, I'm not saying that there there wasn't hate there. Of course, you know, I don't think you can kill people if you don't hate them. But I think it's a very political choice. And it's a it is part of the information war to call it a pogrom, mm. to put it in the context of the Holocaust, as opposed to in the context of a geopolitical grinding battle over land and borders, um, and then call it a war crime. I look around and I feel like everybody thinks and feels like they are vulnerable and that they are losing and that the other side is, you know, uh, you know winning this PR narrative battle. Well, I don't think we've ever seen an information war like this. Um, we have to 
check absolutely everything we're seeing, hacked accounts, doctored screen grabs, you know, um, selectively edited AI. I mean, everybody I talk to is saying, I have never seen anything like this. And I, th- and I think the tricky thing is if it, if it gets us to a point, and I think a lot of people are at a point of, I don't know what I can trust, then just anything is possible. Um, and in some ways, who wins when we can't trust anything, right? Who I think the stronger party probably wins because mm. you can just dismiss anything. Well, what was that? You don't believe that. I mean, we can't believe anything. Um, so it's it's a very asymmetrical battle. And I do think everybody feels frustrated. But I think if we zoom out a little bit, probably this generalized feeling of I can't believe anything serves the stronger party. I, I think in a moment like this, it's tempting to to act in very partisan ways, like to um, to to believe that okay, so if you're in a if you're in a war and a very powerful side is just making up the like, you feel like they're just cr- making up facts and lying with a megaphone, then then maybe your little exaggeration or your little lie or your little denialism doesn't really count. You may as well play the game. I don't think that's the way you win a war like this. I mean, I I think that this is a moment where being true to values, including the value of truth, verifiable truth, as much as you possibly can in the fog of war, is going to serve us a lot better. You know, and one of the things that I I talk about in, in in the book is that when you're very reactive, when you define yourself as who you are not, and whatever your opponent is for, you are against, then you yeah. cease to have any legible values, whether that is yes. freedom of speech, academic freedom, commitment to international humanitarian law. And then then the world just looks like you may as well just choose a team <laughs> um, as opposed to siding with legible values that you can pick out of this morass. Right. Whatever so, the other yeah. side believes, you're, you're compelled to believe the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. You, you have to be anti-vaccine. You have to be anti, <laughs> oh, I don't even want to list them all. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there is there is that tendency to, uh, in a moment like this, to just square off. But the people who I'm looking to and who I'm trusting in a moment like this are the ones who are willing to say, look, when our side does it, I'm against it too. Um, then I know that's a trustworthy person. So let me fit in a quick break and then come back and talk more about Doppelganger, about your doppelganger, Naomi Wolf, and about the themes of your book. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. 
Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back here on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. I'm Brian Selter speaking with Naomi Wolf, author of the book Doppelganger. Oh, take that one again, Brian. Oh my God, what the hell? I don't want to be part of the problem. I was looking at her name in front of me. Three, two, one. And we're back on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. I'm Brian Selter, speaking with Naomi Klein, who's been on a book tour for months. The book is Doppelganger. Uh, and of course, we were talking about Doppelganger in the context of the Israel-Hamas war. Because as you said, Naomi, you, you write about uh, the ongoing conflict uh, in the book. But you focus uh, also on the alt-right, on the far right in the United States, figures like Steve Bannon and your own doppelganger, Naomi Wolf. Uh, people have probably heard interviews with you. I, I want to go you know, in sort of a different direction with it and, and talk about uh, how it applies to these coming elections. But when did you first realize that we were in this mirror world, that you, I, all of us are in this mirror world? I mean, this this hasn't been around for that long. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been gradual and then very, very fast, right? I mean, there was this moment during the Bush years, right? It, it, it was the reality-based community moment. You're in the reality-based community and we... Um, we we make up our own reality. That was the moment, I think, where it was really said out loud for the first time, this idea that reality is putty and you're kind of a sucker if you think that you just have to respond to existing reality. That quote is still so creepy 20 years later. We're an empire now. When we act, we create our own reality. Boy. But in terms of when I really realized it, <laughs> um, partly it was it was just listening to a whole lot of Steve Bannon which I did do because, uh, you know, I have a doppelganger, uh, Naomi Wolf, another Naomi nonfiction writer who I have been perennially confused and conflated with for many years now. And I used to just primarily be annoyed by this, but then it just struck me as she really fell down the rabbit hole during the COVID years that this yeah. was an interesting kind of literary tool. And I just thought, right. well, ma well, maybe I could treat her like my white rabbit in Alice in Wonderland and fall down the rabbit hole with her. In the early months of COVID, she was just sort of one of those people who started saying bizarre things like, because kids were wearing masks at school, they were losing the ability to smile, you know, or things like that. And it was like, okay, what's she going to say next? Um, but then she took this sort of star turn on the Bannonite right, where she started talking about how she regretted voting for Joe Biden because he was bringing, you know, a fascist coup to the United States under the guise of vaccine verification apps. And that these apps that we had all downloaded onto our phones were able to listen to our phone conversations and the government would know everything that we were saying and, and planning and I guess uh, it's still in the works. I guess they haven't <laughs> rolled it out yet three years later. They can cancel your life, all of that, right? Um, so I, so once she started saying this, suddenly she's on Fox, she's on Tucker Carlson, um, and then she's on Bannon's show almost every day for a period. Like, like it was bizarre. So I just started listening to him more than her. And, and that's when this idea of a mirror world really came to me because Bannon is so explicit on his podcast, The War Room, that he's building a parallel reality so that they will not be able to cancel you. He's very clear about this. So you need your own currency. You need your own social media platforms. You need your own publishing companies. And it's a, it's a very direct replica of the world that you and I might recognize. Um, but what's the reason why it's kind of a mirror world is that 
people who aren't paying attention to that world don't really understand that it exists. Because if it's not in your, in, you know, if it's not in your social media feeds, it comes back right. to what we were talking about before, uh, yep. then does it exist? Right. Um, but of course, it's huge. And so, you know, sometimes when I would say to friends that I was, you know, writing about Naomi Wolf, they'd be like, why is she saying anything? And I'd be like, she actually has a larger platform than she's had at any point since she was, you know, Al Gore's um, campaign advisor and was a butt of lots of late night jokes. You know, she, she's reaching millions of people on these platforms. So yeah, I was interested in the, in the way they were creating a parallel reality, but also in the way that we were unseeing them. Or if we saw them, the only thing we were doing was sort of figuring out what they believed so that we could believe the exact opposite. Um, so yeah, it ended up being an interesting way to sort of map the, the post-truth world. And I appreciate the way you describe it because I, you know, I struggled with this when I was at CNN as a media reporter, knowing that there was something happening, this, this splintering, this dividing that was happening. All of these shows like Steve Bannon's that were launching on YouTube and on the radio and podcasts, you, I could feel this breakup happening, this creation of what you call a mirror world. And I just didn't feel like I had the vocabulary for it because um, it's day by day, year by year, it's getting more and more uh, intense, this break off of, uh, I don't know, it's really it's really a right wing alternative reality or, as you say, mirror world. Yeah. And, and then, you know, you have a figure like RFK Jr. And he's very explicit. You know, when he announced his candidacy, he was saying this is going to be the, the first presidential campaign that's going to be won entirely on podcasts. And he, you know, I think he said that to Jordan Peterson. Or, you <laughs> know, I love, I love podcasts, but that makes me laugh. Yeah. But they, you know, they have some very large podcasts, if you're including Rogan. Um, and this is, you know, it, it is a battle for who is going to be the mainstream, right? So it's very easy to sort of say, oh, that's just marginal stuff. Um, but I don't know, is Rogan marginal? I'm not, I'm not sure. You know, he is big enough to create create some reality. So I mean, you just said yeah. his last name. He didn't even just say his full name. He's like the reverse <laughs> Oprah. Yeah. Oh God, reverse what Oprah. did you learn listening to so much of Bannon? Because, you know, you know, listen, Oprah has a lot to answer for in terms of the creation of this mirror world, in terms of some of the celebrities that were spawned, uh, like, you know, Christian Northrup is one of these conspiritualist figures who got really huge writing about women's reproductive health um, and being on Oprah many times. And now, you know, she became one of these QAnon conspiritualist figures, conspirituality being the intersection of spirituality, wellness, and conspiracy theory, um, which is big in the mirror world. Well, when we talk about this world, there are pockets of conspiracy thinking and misinformation on the left. A lot of the suspicion of vaccines, not a lot. Some of the suspicions started in wealthy lefty communities. But where, where do you see this sort of thinking on the left now? How dangerous is it? So I think part of what we've seen in this era, and this is why Wolf is interesting, is that she is one of these crossover figures, right? She comes from the liberal left, uh, not the far left. You know, she was you know, very mainstream with the beauty myth and then working as a, as a consultant for the Democratic Party, being a top advisor for Al Gore, but then takes a very conspiratorial turn after 9-11 and the invasion of Iraq. 
like a lot of people did, Brian, because there were a lot of lies in this era, right? And so, you know, I encountered this when I when I published my book, The Shock Doctrine, which was about how the Bush administration, it starts with 9-11 and not arguing that, that it was an inside job or any of that, but just talking about the way they were very opportunistically using the shock to push through a pre-existing agenda, remake the Middle East or, you know, have more privatized uh, infrastructure of warfare, right? The Halliburton and, and Blackwater era. But a lot of people went further, you know, and said, okay, well, well, well they're profiting so much that maybe they, maybe they planned the whole thing. Now, Wolf didn't go that far that I know of, but she started palling around with people who did go that far. And I think the era that we're in now is it was something that um, political scientists Quint Slobidian and William Callison have, have called diagonalism as a, as a way to explain this migration of a not insignificant portion of the new age left, not the far left, but more the kind of soft new age health in obsessed left, um, you know, very interested in holism and kind of anti-GMO. Uh, but now they're talking about GMO people, which means people who have been vaccinated, right? Who have big pharma inside their bodies, right? And Steve Bannon is, such, is an interesting figure because he is very, very skilled at doing this kind of left-right mix and match, right? That's his political play. That's what he did in 2016 of, of looking at issues that have a lot of resonance on the left, like being anti-free, you know, corporate free trade deals like NAFTA, um, where Democrats used to campaign on this issue, but then ended up signing more of those deals. And he, you know, he, he takes an issue like that, that is being sort of left unattended by mainstream Democrats and mixes it with, anti-immigrant xenophobia, you know, anti-trans hysteria, you know, and, and gets a very potent political mixture. That's the play right now. That's what people like Georgia Maloney in Italy are doing. Um, Victor Orban, you know, that he calls it, you know, a nationalist internationalism. Um, so I'm interested in, in, in how we have parts of the left agenda are being mixed and matched on the right. And, and, and a lot of this kind of you know, I, I would argue a sort of a healthy suspicion of big pharma, big agra is being absorbed into this analysis. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in how we get some of those issues back where there is a kernel of truth, where there is something there, where there is a reason to be suspicious. Now, I was going to ask you, after immersing yourself in MAGA politics, what's it made you realize about your own thinking? What's changed, if anything? And I think th th this is part of it, which is yeah. look at Bannon's issue set. Look at what he's capitalizing on. Look at what he's talking about. Um, so has it changed your thinking? I th it has changed my thinking in that, you know, I, I noticed in myself that as these issues were, a lot of these issues like, for instance, one of the early conspiracy theories of the pandemic had to do with Bill Gates and Bill Gates um, being supposedly part of this network that was maybe planned the pandemic because they wanted everyone to get vaccinated. Why? Because they wanted to track us and they were implanting us. I mean, this was one of the early greatest hits of the pandemic. Yeah, this was an early sign there was a real pandemic disinformation problem. Exactly. The pandemic film, right? Right. 
Now, I actually am not a huge fan of Bill Gates's, um, not for these reasons, but I've been writing about Bill Gates over the years um, because I think he has way too much influence over international health policy and agricultural policy. Um, and he and he was on the side of the drug companies in uh, in an early battle over whether or not the patents should be lifted on the vaccines, right? But what I found in myself was that once Bill Gates became a subject on the conspiratorial right, I was like less inclined to to talk about Bill Gates because I was like, oh, is this just going to feed the conspiracy mill? Do I sound right. crazy? This is what I mean by the the reactivity, like whatever they're against, we're for. And this has made me think a lot about the dangers of defining our, myself against what I see on the right. And I think the Trump era... And the sort of whole hashtag resistance way of thinking about power has been pretty corrosive in terms of defining oneself less by legible principles and more by, I am not what my enemy is doing. Um, you know, when I look at what's happening on the right, um, a lot of it has to do with the attention economy and just the, 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 the incentives of just getting out there first with the most outrageous claim so that you get the clicks, so that you get the views. And I don't think that the, that the way to fight that is just to get out there first with left-wing claims um, that aren't fact-checked, that are going to get the clicks and the views. You know, I think that we really need to stay as true as we possibly can to what we have in place to make sure that what we're saying actually is true so that we still have fact checkers, you know, that we still, um, you know, bring our work to experts and make sure that we are interpreting the data correctly. So I guess that sounds a little bit boring, but I feel like it's not boring to me. It's <laughs> crucial. It's yeah. the whole ball game. Mm -hmm. It's the whole one. Yeah. Which kind of brings us full circle to the, the, you know, the information wars that we're in. I don't think we should think of them like information wars. Um, I think we need to redouble our commitments to actually getting something resembling truth out there, knowing that truth changes, that it evolves, you know, that we're going to be finding new information and we will be transparent about that and updating our claims according to new information. Um yeah. It's the basic work of being a citizen in this incredibly crowded information space. Um, we have to do it. Yeah. Uh, Naomi, this has given us uh, so much to think about. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you so much, Brian. Really nice to speak with you. And the full title of Naomi Klein's book is Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. This episode of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair was produced by Michael May. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our engineer is Jake Loomis, and mixing is by Bob Mallory. I'm Brian Stelter. Thank you for listening this week and every week. You can email me anytime. I'm at bstelter at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter and threads at Brian Stelter. And we'll be back next week with more Inside the Hive. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. 
Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.